Welcome to episode 52 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with Sycharmor trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players or by going to sycharmor.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by the generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. This episode is brought to you by PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military cultural content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. And you can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. On today's episode, I'm having a conversation with Scott Taroki, the Division Director for Justice for Vets, a division of the National Association of Drug Corps Professionals. He served in the U.S. Army Reserves and the Rhode Island Army National Guard for 21 years as a military police officer and retired as a major. While deployed to Afghanistan from 2003 to 2004, he served as a commander for the Training and Doctrine component of Training Assistant Group 2 to the Afghan National Army. Scott is a licensed professional counselor with certifications in clinical trauma and dialectical behavior therapy. You can find out more about Scott by checking out his bio on our show notes. Let's get into my conversation with him and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. You and I have a similar background beyond both going to the same hairdresser. We're both army veterans. We're both have a clinical background and have both been involved in veteran courts over our post-military careers. I'm interested to hear about how you came to work for Justice for Vets throughout this part of your career. Absolutely. It's pretty interesting. I started off working in community behavioral health, and then I worked in the jail setting. I worked for the prison, and I come from the state of Rhode Island, which is pretty much the size of Fairfax County, Virginia. When I got involved in the Department of Corrections, I was able to go to the jails and the prisons. So I saw both ends of the spectrum. But the jail in particular is very fascinating. What I did is during the intake process, when I used to be part of that, we'd have about 40, 45 inmates would come in or detainees every night would come into the prison system. And I started asking the question if they had served in the military. And I was finding that approximately 10 to 12% had served in the military. And then another one of those questions that I asked had to do with brain injury. I was always fascinated with, with brain injury because I knew folks with traumatic brain injury. And I asked a simple question and it was, have you ever been in a position where you've been knocked unconscious with, with either a baseball bat or you're simply, has your head ever gone through a car windshield? And I was absolutely surprised by the amount of individuals that had served in the military and also had traumatic brain injury. So that kind of piqued my interest. And then from after working in the prison and jail system for many years, I went to the Rhode Island Judiciary and I worked in pretrial services. And they wanted to start their first Veterans Treatment Court program. And so I was the guy to actually begin doing that. And thinking about my experiences working in the prison system and that brain injury question always came back to me somehow. I really was very fueled by that. I worked as a uh, program coordinator for the Rhode Island Veterans Treatment Court program for several years. And um, then I was also doing consulting work for Justice for Vets. And eventually a position, a full-time position became open at Justice for Vets. And so I applied for the position and I've been in this current role since 2018. 
And, and I think it's very interesting, especially having your own military background, your own deployments. As you said, I think I got my first concussion at, at Fort Bragg in the late 90s. It was one of those uh, rites of passage. If you didn't get your bell rung, then you weren't you know, welcome to the 82nd Airborne Division. But I think at that time in the late 90s, just starting to understand, but especially with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we were really starting to understand that the survivability led to greater traumatic brain injuries and catastrophic wounded, ill, and injured. And it's interesting that your military experience and your personal experience and your clinical experience came to a head while also being involved in the criminal justice system. And that's a strange story too. The majority of my entire career was spent doing in the Rhode Island National Guard. I volunteered for one deployment, which was more than enough for me, to Afghanistan in 2003 to 2004. And I was a mental health clinician. So I went in there completely knowing the issues that could, but of course, not knowing until you're exposed to that environment. And, and, and I came home myself after several years post-deployment where things started bothering me. And we're talking, Duane, probably about four years post-deployment. I was able to get some assistance, went to a vet center, a big advocate of vet centers, fantastic vet centers. It's interesting how it all came together, working in the criminal justice system, having my own deployment experiences, coming back to the criminal justice system in a different role. And yes, there, but for the grace of God, go I and, and you and everyone else. And I think that's one of the things, one of the, the big things, we'll talk about this later, the Justice for Vets does is provide mentors for the court system. But I think every mentor that I've ever talked to has said the same thing. Like, I'm just one bad decision. I'm just one bad night away from being a participant in these programs rather than just being someone who's supporting these programs. Absolutely so true. You and I could have a sidebar conversation about this because we both worked in those programs. That's absolutely true. And again, just to relate my own personal experience, having the education, having the strong family support and community support that I had, I was fortunate. But a lot of folks are not fortunate in that regard. And I think you you understanding that there were resources out there, such as the Vet Center, yeah. same me as well. You know, about a year after I retired, I, I availed myself of the Vet Center, one of the best things I could have done. My wife suggested <laughs> I avail myself of the Vet Center right. and also had the wherewithal and, and the desire to reach out. That was another barrier. I returned from Iraq in 2007 after my first 15-month deployment, and you'd already been to Afghanistan, as you said. I think we started noticing the psychological impact of rapid deployments and knowing that the reasons for misbehavior at that time are not the same as they were in, say, 1989. But I still have some people that ask me, why should veterans be given special treatment? They, they say, that, why are veteran courts even necessary? No, I think it's, it's an excellent question. And we have a population of individuals that are in our criminal justice system that we know what the potential issues can be. And specifically, this particular population around traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress, trauma, to include military sexual trauma, and other invisible wounds. We have that understanding of what their possible needs are. And we have the big VA. We have in every state, the Department of Veterans Affairs, that can provide these services, these interventions for individuals that could possibly have those problems, those issues. I would argue that we would have a moral obligation to be able to support them if we know what the need is for those individuals and we have the resources, I really truly believe we have a moral obligation to provide them with those support services. 
I have seen traditional prosecution. We don't have those insights into those individuals that we have in these treatment court settings. And so that is the, the number one, if not the reason to recognize that if we have individuals that have a diagnosis and we have the interventions to provide assistance for those individuals, for those diagnoses, then by God, we have an obligation to provide them with that support. No, I, I completely agree. Is those listeners who may be familiar with veterans courts, they were a problem solving court based off of a drug court model. But a lot of these courts are really based on a particular condition, but not a population. And the way I've always described it is veterans courts, all of the problem solving courts, whether it's a substance abuse court or domestic violence court or a DUI court or a mental health court. But it's much more complicated in the veteran population because all of those conditions can be present in the same individual. Yes, you and I both know it's I think the veteran population or specifically the justice involved veteran population is one of the most challenging populations to work with. Everything from we talk about co-occurring disorders or we talk about alcohol dependence. But this particular population, I think you hear multiple morbidities. That's another word they use, right? I just think it's this population with with specifically the multiple chronic conditions that they have and we have the supports, the services to intervene. Why not? Good God. And I think that's the other piece is that there are so many resources, whether it is in a community setting, if you have a large military community or you have the Department of Veterans Affairs, is that there's often this gap between these veterans that are involved in the justice system. They've been in bad situations. They've, in yes, often made bad decisions for a various number of reasons. But the resources that are there from the Department of Veterans Affairs Many of these veterans, in my experience, in yours, I assume the same, they just don't avail themselves of that. They don't take advantage of the resources that are out there. Right. And I think you had indicated before you were a mentor. And sometimes what happens that we find is individuals may feel that they may be negative about the VA. And, And we always say, if you've only been to one VA, you've only been to one VA. And especially today's VAs is so incredible because I'm just thinking about that polytrauma system of care they have at the VA. You can't touch that anywhere. So we say, please encourage your participant, your mentee to go to the VA because it's going to be their experience. It's not your experience, bad or good. It doesn't matter. This is available to them. It's available in every state. I moved from Rhode Island to Tennessee and my VA medical records, they all followed me, which is fantastic. That continuity of care, that's what it's all about. And and I think in and at the same time, it's a very different VA from Rhode Island to Tennessee to, yes. to St. Louis to, to Colorado. And I think that's one of the things that, in my experience, veterans involved in the criminal justice system, life has gotten to them to a point where they don't see beyond what their, their current problem is. And the veteran courts are there to be able to support them to maybe pick their head up and help them realize what you think is going to be bad in the VA, for example, it's not going to be as bad as that. That's right. And we see that with, our, uh, again, going back to our mentor piece, whose responsibility as we teach. In our trainings, we say the mentor's responsibilities to provide hope and moral support. And those sound like two simple things, but they are tremendous impacts with the individual they're working with. And that's, that support is just there's nothing quite like that peer-to-peer. 
than there is, as we know, practitioner to client or probationer to probationee. It's just amazing. And, and I think that's another unique aspect of veteran courts is that peer support model. Veteran courts call them mentors, but the VA has been involved in this peer support model that provides a measure of lived experience in that you and I, as clinicians who also have military experience, have been, and we're super peers, so to speak. But that peer support model is one way that I've seen that's been very beneficial to help individuals who are hesitant to seek mental health care to get over that hesitancy. I think it's one of the, it's the piece that makes the Veterans Treatment Court programs so successful. One is having big VA at the table, and the other one is having that peer support network. Absolutely. And we, like you said, we have mentors in our courts, but we're also seeing peer support specialists from the VA, from the community as well, now being becoming part of our VTCs, which is phenomenal. That is another unique aspect that I really appreciate about veterans courts. When I was involved and before we started talking, I, I told you how I was involved in our local veterans court. It was an example of multidisciplinary cooperation. You had state judiciary, you had local yes. nonprofits, you had local community health providers, you had VA representation at the table in the community. That's another unique aspect is the, the veteran justice outreach personnel from local VAs are connected to local veterans courts. Yes, the, v, the VJO specialists, where would we be without them? They are absolutely fabulous. They've grown substantially throughout the entire country. And it's just such a critical component to have them. And speaking of our VTCs also, the programming, the interventions are veteran specific. The responses, we, we talk about being the clinical side and the criminogenic side. The responsiveness to that population now, even our criminogenic programming is veteran-centric now that we didn't have in years past. There's two or three companies out there right now that are doing specific criminogenic programming for the veteran population. So it's not just clinical, it's addressing criminogenic issues as well, which we've seen that evolve tremendously over the past two to three years. I think that's a great point, too. I, I, my personal mentor, Judge David Shakes uh, of our local veterans court, he says that his veteran court participants are very different from who he normally sees as a judge. These veterans didn't grow up thinking, I'm going to find myself in front of a judge at some point. It was as much situational. And so it's very critical that not only has the veterans courts come to serve veterans, but it's also advancing the treatment of veterans in the criminal justice system. It, it's Bingo. coming around full circle. Yes, sir. Absolutely. We, we see that now. It's clear as day. And so this is a lot of what Justice for Vets, your organization does, is in supporting courts around the country. Since veteran courts first began in 2008, they've been around for a number of years, but I'm still surprised how many in the veteran community aren't familiar with veterans courts uh, or they don't really know what they are or much less understand what Justice for Vets is as an organization. I think this is great that this is this podcast is certainly helping getting that word out. They've grown tremendously. There's an estimated 400 and good gosh, 425, 430 VTCs across the country, which is fabulous. We provide training at multiple levels. And I'll just give a shout out here. But the programming we do is we provide support to grantees and non-grantees. The majority of our funding comes from the Bureau of Justice Assistance. We are so grateful to have them in, in our court. They are fabulous. They provide us with our financial assistance. And we provide to programs out there foundational trainings, operational tune-up trainings, which we call refresher trainings, the mentor boot camps, we call them. We also provide mentor coordinator trainings. We have e-learning. We On our website, we have 10 or 15 
quick snapshots of uh, mentoring itself and trauma-informed care and what that means. We do statewide conferences on clinical topics as well as criminogenic topics. We do a lot. We've got a lot, not much we don't do out there for the veterans treatment courts that, that request our assistance or just say, hey, we'd love to have up-to-date current training on stuff. All of our trainings are evidence-based, they're seeped in research. We don't do trainings that say, this is my opinion, so listen to me and this is how it should be. So everything is rooted in evidence. And we're very, very proud of our trainings as well. Our website, nadcp.org or justiceforvets.org would be a fabulous starting point for anyone that's interested in receiving more training about VTCs. And, and I think that's both for individuals. Is there a veteran court in my area? That's a great place to to go to be yes, connected sir. to veterans courts. But also for those individuals who may be, I want one in my area. How do I start one in my area? Obviously, that is a very local conversation. But having Justice for Vets, having been part of this as it has grown, can help communities establish courts or engage with key stakeholders. Yes, that's what we just asked. Pick up the phone. I'm listed on there. You can give me a telephone call. You can give, I have folks, project directors that are working with me and training coordinators. We can help. We can absolutely assist. We'll, we'll take emails, text messages, phone calls. Our motto is we will not rest until there is a veterans treatment court in reach of every veteran in need, period. That's our motto. That's what's on our challenge coin. It's very simple. It's right to the point. And we mean it. By God, we do. And, and I think that's a, a, a very critical point. And, and again, I've also been involved in legislative advocacy. But as you mentioned, the proliferation of veteran courts around the country, it could almost be a matter of a veteran violating the law in one jurisdiction, three miles away in a different jurisdiction, and they may not have the same resources because the different jurisdiction just over the county line, for example, just over the district line may not have the same resources as a veterans court. And so I, I think it's critical as big as it's become, I absolutely agree. It needs to be bigger. Yes, yes. And we, we the good news is we are seeing regional veterans treatment courts now. And we have seen some of them that have actually crossed the state line, which is very fascinating. We're seeing federal veterans treatment courts. Uh, it's a fantastic, there's a, there's a great one out of Waco, Texas there with Judge Mansky. Mm-hmm. So we've got the federal veterans treatment courts we're seeing now. We're seeing municipal veterans treatment courts at the city level. Arizona comes to mind. So they are out there. One of the trainings we do is we actually talk about how do we get the word out. And we do this training with our mentors as well as our multidisciplinary staff teams, whether it's a brochure, whether it's a website, 501c3s, but we're seeing more of them and we're seeing more community stakeholders come to the table too, which is also fabulous. Whether it's an Elks Club or a local American Legion. And I think as we see... Obviously, as we come out of this period of the longest sustained conflict in U.S. history, we're coming to the end of at least this phase of the global war on terror. You and I both know we have another 30, 40 years. The the youngest veteran of the global war on terror just left Afghanistan six months ago. So we have to serve that young man or woman for the next 50 years because we've seen what's happened with the Vietnam generation 30, 40, 50 years on down the line. Uh, Unfortunately, this is a problem, perhaps like veteran homelessness, the work that I do around veteran suicide that isn't going away anytime soon. Absolutely. Absolutely not. We're just touching it now. And, and again, I, like you said, not to get too far afield, I, I know that I could have conversations and have had many conversations about veterans courts for much longer than we have here. So if people do want to find out more about the work that you do, and you mentioned your website, but can you give us the website again, maybe some social media that Justice for Vets has where they can find out more? 
Sure. So our website is simply justiceforvets.org. One word, justiceforvets.org. Our official Twitter handle is justice the number four vets. Our official Facebook is justice for vets. That's F O R vets. And we'll make sure that all of those are in the show notes. Scott, it was really great to be able to have you come on the show today. Oh, it was so nice meeting you, Dwayne. Thank you for all the fabulous work you do to get this word out. And the podcast are fabulous. I, I've I've checked out a couple already, so I'm looking forward to future ones. Absolutely appreciate it. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. A veteran spent last night in jail. That's going to be true when I record this, and it's going to be true when you listen to it, whether you hear this on the day that it comes out or five years later. And it's probably a lot of veterans for a number of different reasons. You heard Scott say that when he was working in the jail system, that's initial incarceration, first getting arrested, things like that, about 10 to 15% of the people being booked in the facility had served in the military. That's five or six veterans a night, 40 veterans a week, in one jurisdiction in Rhode Island. Those numbers add up, and they add up quickly. And if you served in the military, chances are that someone you served with, someone that you trusted, found themselves sitting in the back of a cop car at some point. The reasons for this are complicated and various. It's not very sensitive of me, but I've often said that you have criminals who happen to be veterans, and you have veterans who happen to commit crimes. You have those who served in the military who simply behave and think in criminogenic ways. They don't follow the law. They don't necessarily respect the rights of others. They think in such a way that leads them to engage in criminal acts. We know who they are. We served with them. And when we hear later that they found themselves in front of a judge somewhere, we may be surprised, but not really. Then we have those veterans who were a total surprise when we hear about it, that they were the last person that we would think of that would do something like that, whatever that is. And the fact is that we need to support both of these veterans. And that's where veteran courts come in. Again, as I said in the interview, I've heard some veterans say that they don't believe that veterans in the criminal justice system should get special privileges. I've also heard this from non-veterans who work in the criminal justice system, that if we give special consideration to veterans, that we should do so for other populations, first responders, for example, or foster children. But Scott makes the point here that two of the difference for this particular population is that one, we know some of the primary causes of justice involvement for veterans. Exposure to trauma, both physical and psychological. Moral injury, which is when our military experiences cause what we believe to be right and wrong to be shifted in both large and small ways. The other thing, as Scott points out, is that there are resources to address these known causes, both at the federal level through the Department of Veterans Affairs and often at the local level. So if you're not familiar with veteran courts, I suggest you look up Justice for Vets, learn more about them, and see if there's a court in a jurisdiction near you because you never know when it might come in handy. Another thing that I'd like to bring up is Scott's description of the goal of veteran mentors. We didn't go very deep into it on the show, but one part of each veteran court program is the element of peer support, those who served in the military being part of the program to assist justice-involved veterans. This is often seen as a key element of a veteran court. The program may or may not be successful because it has veteran mentors involved, but it's certainly not going to be successful if it doesn't have them involved. Every veteran knows that trust is huge, and just having served in the military establishes trust with others who have done so, even if it's only for a minute. 
and a minute may be all it takes to help someone recover from some significantly poor life choices. Scott mentioned that they tell their mentors that their whole purpose is to provide hope and moral support for veteran court participants, hope that things can be better than they are and different than they were, and moral support that know that when mistakes are made, and they often are, especially for veterans in a recovery program like Veteran Court, then the veteran is not garbage, they're not going to be written off, they're not going to be tossed out. Hope and moral support. That's what veterans have been giving each other since Valley Forge. It's what got them through the Wilderness Campaign and the Battle of the Bulge. From the jungles of Vietnam to the deserts of Iraq and the mountains of Afghanistan, service members have been supporting each other through the roughest patches, the worst moments, the darkest nights. It's one of the things that forges the bond that veterans have. It forms the core of the military ethos. Never leave anyone behind. You don't baby them. You don't make excuses for their behavior, but you don't leave them, ever. And for justice-involved veterans, maybe that support is the thing that helped them through. And once they lost that support, they couldn't fight it in other ways. They didn't have a support system like me and Scott, or access to or awareness of resources like the vet centers or the VA. They lost that hope that things could be better, and they found moral judgment or condemnation rather than moral support. Hope and non-judgmentalness is a powerful thing, my friends, and we've all been beneficiaries of them. It's great to know that Justice for Vets is supporting those who have served and may have lost the power of hope and moral support. Check out Justice for Vets because they can use your help, but more importantly, it's possible that someone that you know could probably use theirs. For this week's PsychArmor Resource of the Week, I'd like to share the series of PsychArmor courses on military culture. In the Cornerstone PsychArmor course, 15 Things Veterans Want You to Know, to working with veterans as a community member, and basic information about how to communicate with veterans who are disabled or trauma-exposed, these courses are designed to help you understand and interact with veterans more effectively so that you can provide whatever support that they need. You can access this course series through a link in our show notes. So thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find in your podcast player of choice, as well as at psychomer.org forward slash podcast. You will find the link to everything we talked about in today's show, as well as hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. Thank you for joining me on this episode and for continuing to join us on this journey. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation, and make sure to engage with PsychArmor on social media to let us know what you think about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we would like for you to do that, but make sure you let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.